Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. If you have a Bible today, I would encourage you to uh, join me in James chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today, James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 today. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you, download the Version Bible app, and uh, there you can um, uh, go to the More tab, the Events tab, you'll see Awaken Church Live, click on that, and you'll be able to take notes and follow along there. Uh, while you're turning there, getting settled in, in, um, uh, in James chapter 4, in your chair and all of that, I do want to just uh, uh, make note of something real quick. Um, last weekend was known here at Awaken as Promotion Sunday. And for a lot of you who have kids, who have parents, like this doesn't really maybe affect all of you, but it definitely affected those of you who have kindergartners um, and those of you, because now they're in first grade, and those of you, if you're like me, who had uh, fifth graders going into the sixth grade, it definitely affected you there as well. And so I, I just want to talk for just a minute to um, all of my parents and kids who are in students um, right now, if you're in sixth through twelfth grade. Um, because uh, it was very unique. I remember talking to Mindy, our kids' ministry director, and she was telling me, she was like, this is coming up, this is happening. I was like, I don't know that I'm ready for this to happen. Like, I don't know that I want my Brody, the, my oldest son, uh, to be coming in here and sitting and listening to messages. Like, I don't know that I'm ready for this. Like, I don't know if he's ready for the jokes. Like, I got some stories on that kid, too, that I'm not sure he wants to listen to. Like, you know, there's just some things that I, I was like, I don't know that I'm ready for it. But, um, you know, it, it made me think if I'm feeling this way, I'm sure a lot of us probably feel this way as well. And I, I, it just kind of came to my mind. Like it's like a new pair of shoes. Like every year before school starts, my kids will always buy them a new pair of shoes for school uh, because they've blown through the rest of their shoes. And so we get them a new pair of shoes and they're always stoked out of their mind for these shoes. They love them. They can't wait to wear them, try them on, all this other stuff. And they love them all the way up until the point where they start getting blisters on the back of their heels. And you know what they do? They kick off those shoes. They want nothing to do with them. They're like, get these out of here. They want to go back to their old shoes, the shoes that their feet are coming out of, you know, like they want to go back to the old way of things. And I'm like, guys, you can't do that. You got to push through. You got to break in those shoes a little bit. And then, of course, they eventually do, and they're glad and thankful that they pushed through all of that. But I say that because I think the tendency as a parent or as someone who's in Awakened Students to be like, well, let me just go back to the old way. Let me just go back to this way and how we used to do that. Like, that feels comfortable. That's what I want. But we're doing this for a reason. We want to push um, our students, and we want to push you guys into what it looks like to have Jesus be a part of your family. Not just, I've got my own faith, my kids have theirs, and we just kind of live in the same house, but it's something integrated in everything that we do. In fact, there's been statistics that have shown that as kids go from Sunday school to then middle school youth group to high school youth group to then college age youth group, that after they're done with all these groups, they don't feel like they belong to the church. They don't know where to go after that. And so the idea is really that they come to church, they learn these regular rhythms that we have, that we come to church and we're involved in a group. So I would encourage you, come to church on a Sunday, bring your students, but also take them to awaken students. They need that. They need to learn from, um, their, they need to talk to kids their own age, talk what God's showing them, work out their own faith. And we've seen a lot of great growth there happening spiritually with our students. So I would encourage you, don't, don't be like, let me just go back to the old shoes. No, you got to keep breaking in these new shoes and um, it will be healthier and it will be better for us. And those uh, student leaders are great. They had 
the biggest uh, amount of kids there. Uh, they had over 54 kids this last uh, Wednesday, which is fantastic. So if you're looking for a place to serve, that's also a place. But, uh, you know, you can also serve and awaken um, uh, kids to kind of start setting them up for that. And, and just on a real practical level, I want to say this as well. Like when last weekend when um, Brody sat in with us for the first time, I, on the way home, I was just like, hey, what did you learn? And I told him, I'm going to ask him the same question today. Like, you don't just get a pass. You know, we'll see how much he listens to dad. But, you know, like, but, but like, hey, what did you learn? What did you get out of it? And we had like a five-minute conversation about it, and it was really good. I, I saw what he learned. And so I would encourage you, again, don't just be like, well, my kids got their own faith. I got my faith. We never talk about it talk about it. Um, The Lord will give you things to say. He'll show you what to say. Again, our faith isn't one to be just like, well, I've got my own. It's privatized. No, as a family, we're all striving to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Amen? So, it's, it's amen whether you believe it or not. Like you have, we have family dedications here and uh, it's not for us to just train up the kids. It's we're trying to help you as parents. We care deeply about families and we want you guys to know how to teach your kids, raise your kids in the ways of the Lord. So I hope that makes sense. If you need any further clarification, you want to know more, you want to have a talk, um, you can come and find me or one of our pastors. We'd love to talk more about that. But I just wanted to say that right out the gate. So uh, James chapter four, if you have a Bible, I hope you found your place there. I've given you plenty of time to find your place there. But uh, James chapter four, this week I googled how many decisions do we make every single day? And what I found out is I found an article from Psychology Today that said that we make up to 35,000 decisions every single day. That's assuming that we sleep 7,000 hours. And uh, that that means that we're making, um, uh, what is it? Uh, 2,000 choices every hour or one choice every two seconds. Now, if you're like me, you're probably questioning, like, is that actually true? Like, you're making a choice right now to believe that stat or not. But the reality is, let's just say, like, even that article questioned that. It was like, is that even possible, plausible to make that many choices? But let's just say that that number is way overinflated. Let's just say that that's inflated by 90%. Well, here's what that means. You still have a few thousand choices every single day that you need to make. I mean, think about it. From the moment we open up our eyes, our lives are filled with choices and decisions that we need to make. And some of them, they're not going to be that significant, right? They're going to be like, well, what are we going to eat today for lunch? You know, are we going to go home and take a nap or not? Although I would say that's probably a big life decision. But, you know, are we going to do that? Or, you know, what are we going to wear? Do these shoes go with this? You know, but then there's those big life decisions that will affect your life. And I was thinking this week, I was like, how do we make life decisions? How do we do that? For some of you here today, what you do is you get out a piece of paper and you do the pros and cons, right? And you draw a line right down the middle. On one side, you got pros. On the other side, you got cons. And as you're thinking about this decision, you just see which one has the most. And whichever one seems to have the most, you kind of just go with that decision. Others of us here today, we do an opinion poll, right? And here's what this is. I'm going to bring in all my close friends, my BFFs, and I'm going to tell them, hey, this is a decision that I need to make. And if, if, as I ask them and as I poll them, if I see, oh, yeah, we all, they come out with this decision or this seems to be what everybody's saying, like, that's how I'm going to make that decision. Others of us, we, uh, we do, well, whatever makes me feel the happiest, Right? Like we look at whatever choice or decision we have to make and we go, well, this one doesn't make me happy, so I'm going to go with this one over here. 
or we do whatever feels good, right? Like you're faced with a decision that you need to make and you don't know what to do. And so in the moment you're like, well, this just feels good. So we just kind of feel our way through decisions. Others of us, we go, well, those, both those ways are stupid. Like I have a brain, God gave me a brain, so I'm going to use my common sense. So whatever makes the most sense to me, that's the decision that I'm going to make. I've heard Christians all the time say, well, I just do the open door. Like, as long as there's an open door, I'm going to keep walking through that open door. And that's fine. But sometimes we fail to ask, who even opened the door? Are we the ones trying to jam our way through and push our way through? Is it really the Lord opening the door or is it not? Uh, maybe you've done this. I hope not. But my kids and, and our neighbor, they were doing this last night. They were grabbing the magic eight ball and they were shaking the magic eight ball going, what do we need to do? And, you know, making those decisions. Do you know that the magic eight ball has five indecisive decisions? You know, that's crazy. This isn't going to help. And one of those things, probably you're going, I need to make a decision. It's like, better not tell you now. And you're like, great, that's not helpful at all to me, right? But here's the thing. A lot of us, we'll use one of those methods in making decisions, pros and cons. What makes me feel happy? What feels right? What are my friends saying? The open door. And none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, But here's the question I want us to ask ourselves today. Not necessarily what method is the best method, but does it really matter to God how I make decisions in life and do we involve God in our decision-making process? For some of us here today, we're like, well, yeah, of course I involve God. Like, I make my plans. I do things my way. And then I go, hey, God, would you bless this? You know, then I'll bring it to God. Then I'll pray to God. Isn't that what we do a lot of times as Christians? We make our own plans. We do our own things. One of those methods we talked about, and as soon as we make our decision, we go, God, here's my decision. Would you bless and provide and sustain me all along the way? God, I've given you 24 hours. Tell me what you, tell me what you got. You know, I, I prayed for five minutes, and the Lord didn't, I didn't have a check in my spirit, so I just kind of went with whatever I thought was the best. Or I didn't really feel that bad about it. I kind of invited God into it. And what James is going to tell us today is that it's not about us making our plans and saying, God, would you just bless them? But that as we make future plans, it's important for us to acknowledge God's authority in our lives. In fact, the title of today's message is Don't Play God With Your Life. Don't play God with your life. If you have a Bible or the YouVersion Bible app, pick up in verse 13 of chapter 4 with me. James says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet do you not know what tomorrow will bring? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James starts off these sets of verses in a strong way. In fact, in the Greek, it's kind of more uh, of an exclamation point. Like he's trying to get our attention. He's trying to wake us up a little bit. He's like, hey, wake up. Come on now. He's like pulling us by the collar, grabbing us by the sides of our face, pulling us in, saying, I want you to pay attention. I need you to hear what I'm saying right now. Listen to these words. This is very important for you to listen to because James wants us to avoid the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption that we know what God wants for us. James doesn't want us to make life choices apart from seeking and submitting to the will of God. And here's what James is saying, that when we treat decisions in our life like God doesn't exist, 
And we say, well, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go do that and I'll stay here for a little while and I'll spend time and I'll make a profit. And we do all these things. We make all these major life decisions with this careless attitude. James says that we act in a way that's evil. He, he begins strong and he ends strong. That word evil means to be actively evil, morally bad or wrong. When we don't invite God into the decisions in our lives, the Bible says that's evil. This word evil is the very word used to describe Satan himself. In fact, three times in the New Testament, the Bible refers to him as the evil one. And it's the same word here in James as it is in the New Testament. And here's what James is getting at. He's not like, hey, this is just a good idea for life. Like, here's some good advice, some things that you should probably do. That's not what he's doing at all. James is saying, if you don't do this, God calls this evil. And it's more in line with who Satan is than who God is. Here's what you need to understand. When you make decisions about your life, your finances, your future, your job, your career, your home, your family, and you don't seek and submit to the will of God, you're living in a way that's contrary to the very life of Jesus. Even Jesus said in John chapter 6, he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. See, if we make big life decisions without seeking and submitting to the will of God, this is the opposite of Christ-likeness that we want to mimic. And what James is telling us in these verses that, is that this is a dangerous way to live our life. In fact, he gives us four reasons why, four warnings of why this is dangerous. And the first warning is this. It's dangerous because our perspective is limited. Our perspective is limited. Look again at what he says in verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now that word know is a word that means know by experience, know by acquiring information. It means to be aware of a specific fact or piece of information. Here's what this means played out. Life is uncertain. You could say amen there if you want. If you didn't say amen, you haven't lived long enough, right? Like life is uncertain. If you don't believe it, just keep on living because there's going to be stuff that's going to happen to you today that you didn't plan on. There's going to be stuff that's going to happen to you tomorrow that didn't hit your calendar, didn't hit your agenda. There are going to be things that are going to happen to you this week that you won't see coming. Life is uncertain. And when we make decisions without seeking God's will, you are choosing to make decisions that could affect your life and the life of those you love. There's some decisions that you may be making that you're like, hey, God doesn't exist. And you're making these decisions. God doesn't actually want that for you. He doesn't want you to go to that place. He doesn't want those things for you. But you're doing that anyways. And it's going to harm you and it's going to harm those that you love. Jesus isn't teaching, or James isn't teaching us here that making plans for the future is sinful or wrong or telling us, hey, don't ever make plans. That's of the devil. Like, that's not what he's saying at all. He's not telling us, hey, just fly by the seat of your pants. Who cares? Whatever. Just don't plan. No. The Bible actually views planning and preparation as a virtue. The Psalms are all filled with wisdom about planning and executing that plan. But James's point here is that our plan should be informed by, driven by, fueled by a greater reality. And here's the bottom line. You don't know what you don't know. And for some of you, that's going to hit you later on tonight. You're going to go to bed and you're going to be like, oh, whoa, that was deep. Like you don't know what you don't know, right? We don't know what tomorrow holds. And I think James is being very generous here. Uh, like we don't even know what today holds. 
Like, I don't know what's going to come after this. I have an idea, but I don't know what's going to come after this. Like, my plan is this. We're going to see what the Lord's going to do in the rest of our time, how he's going to speak to us. And after the end of service, I'll be up here with some of the other pastors and we'll pray over you. I might catch up with you in the parking lot or in the lobby, pray for you out there as well. And then once everybody's out of here, I'll be one of the last ones to leave and I'll get in my truck and I'm going to head home. And I'm looking forward to it because I got some leftovers that I'm looking forward to eating and I'm going to go home and I'm going to eat. But on the way home, I've got three boys in the back of the truck who I know are going to say, personal space. He's looking at me. He's touching me. They're going to fight. They're going to argue. They're going to bigger. We might have some discipline problems and things that I'm going to have to work out as well. But, you know, I'm anticipating some of that. But then after I eat my leftovers, deal with the kids, I'm going to take a nap. And it's going to be a good nap. And then I'm going to wake up. And then I get to spend the rest of the day with the family. I'm going to enjoy the rest of our night together with one another. Now, do I have any idea if any of that's actually going to happen? Not at all. That's my plan. That's what I hope to do. But here's the reality. I don't even know if I'm going to make it home for lunch today. I don't say that to scare anyone, but to say that because that's the reality. Every single one of us in this room, our lives are just one phone call away from completely changing. You have plans to go to work tomorrow. Will you make it to work? Some of you are like, I hope not. Like, I'd rather be in eternity with Jesus than go to work, okay? But you have plans to go into work tomorrow. Will you make it there? Probably, but you don't know that for sure. Will you make it home after church? I hope so. We don't know that for sure. Life is fragile. Life is uncertain. James is pointing out that you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know what today's going to bring because our perspective is always limited. See, whatever decision you're on the brink of making today, there's some stuff on the other side of that decision you just don't see yet, that you're not aware of. You don't have access to that information. But here's what I want you to know, that God's perspective is unlimited. And not only is his perspective unlimited, he's in absolute control. I love what Job 28 says. It says, for he, speaking of God, views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Here's what this verse means. There's nothing that escapes the wisdom, the knowledge, the power, and the control of God. And so if you and I have access to the, pers- to the one whose perspective is unlimited, to the one who's in complete control, shouldn't we ask him things on the front side of the decisions that we are making? But our perspective is unlimited. And that's the first warning James gives us. Here's the second warning. James says that our flesh is deceitful. Again, look at verse 13. He says, Today or tomorrow we will go in such and such a town and spend a year there and trade, and here's what I want to look at, and make a profit. Now, James, when he was originally writing this, he was writing this to Christian businessmen. These were people in the world uh, trading, investing, buying, selling. And he was addressing them because they were boasting in their ability to make money and to be successful. That's why in verse 16, it says, boasting with your arrogance or boasting in your arrogance. And while they're doing all of this, they are forgetting all about God. Even though they call themselves believers, they are living like practical atheists. And here's what I mean by that. They claim to be followers of Jesus, but in the way they conducted their business, the way that they were living their lives, there was no consideration Uh, no thought to God's will, God's plan, or God's purpose for them. 
And so they became practical atheists. And the reality is what James is describing is not something just for businessmen. We don't need to just read this and go, whew, glad I'm not a businessman right now, you know, like this doesn't apply to me. No, this applies to all of us. We all have a lust for more. How many times do we make decisions just because we want more? Now, is there anything wrong with wanting more? No, if that's God's will for us, there's nothing wrong. Like to God be the glory, like bring on the more. But more often than not, it's not about getting more. It's about what the Bible says, that we are to be content with what we have. See, the drive for more is like filling up a cup with a hole in it. Like no matter how much you fill up that cup, there's all, it's never going to be full. There's always going to be a little bit empty because it's always leaking out. The flesh will always say, man, I just need a little bit more. And here's what we know about the flesh. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we know a little bit about the flesh, right? The flesh is going to lie to you. The flesh is deceitful. Even Jeremiah chapter 17 says, the heart is wicked and deceitful. Who can really understand it? Your heart, my heart will lie to us. And so if the motivation for our decision is to get more because getting more makes me happy, let me tell you, there's a hole in the bottom of that cup. It won't last, it won't fulfill, and it won't satisfy. See, if you're here today and you honestly believe like more stuff, more money, more things, like that vacation, that relocation is going to bring you happiness in your life and is going to solve most of your problems, you're going to be wrong in thinking that. Because more money, more things, all of that stuff that the world promises to give us will not solve most of your problems. What will solve your problems is more Jesus. More Jesus will solve your problems. The reality is money and things and stuff will not keep your kids off drugs. More money will not make your marriage happier. If you don't like each other when you're broke, what makes you think having money is going to make it any better, right? More money and stuff and things aren't going to cure your loved one of cancer. How many times do we hear celebrities who go, man, I've been diagnosed with this thing. I've got all the money in the world. I could buy this. I could go here. I could do that, but I can't heal myself. More Jesus is what we need. More Jesus brings intimacy. It brings healing. It brings focus. It brings power. It brings purpose. It brings the divine into this world. What we need is more Jesus. So instead of saying, I want more, you're never going to have enough. It's filling a cup with a hole in it. It'll always be coming out, leaking out. What we need is more Jesus. More Jesus gives more of his purpose, more of his direction. Here's the third one. And that is the warning that James gives us is that our time is short. Verse 14, he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Now, James asked this question, what is your life? Now, when he asks this, he's not posing some philosophical thought. Like, I don't know if you went to college and had to take philosophy. I thankfully always tried to get out of it and successfully did get out of it. But what I always felt like I heard from psychology classes, they just sit there and they go, why? Like philosophy, rather, not psychology, philosophy. Why? Like, why do we do this? Like, what's the purpose? You know, like, that's all I think they do is sit around and ask why. And that's not what James is doing. He's not doing philosophy 101 here. Like, what is your life, what he's doing is he's given us a descriptive statement of what our life is. A better way to translate this would be what sort of life do you have? 
And again, just like he's done previously, this is a rhetorical question because he gives us the answer. He's like, your life is a mist. Now, when you hear that word mist, don't think of like the morning fog that's just kind of there for a little while. And then you kind of like, you see and you're like, oh, isn't that so nice? Like that fog. And then the sun just kind of burns it up. No, it's talking about your life being a vapor. Like it's just there and it's gone. I mean, think about when it was cold outside. I don't know if any of you remember when it was cold outside. Like, I miss those cold days. Like, it's a little too hot out there now for me. But, um, you know, but, it, but it's like if those cold days, as you're out there and you're walking around and, and you breathe, what do you do? You see your air for just a second and then it's gone. You see your breath. That's what James is describing here. That's gone. James says, if you look at everything in light of eternity, our lives are a mist. It appears for a little while and then it vanishes. You see, we make all these plans as if our time is unlimited. We make plans thinking, oh, well, I've got plenty of time to get to that. I know this is what the Lord wants, but I'm going to go do this thing. I'll get around to that eventually. And we walk around and we act as if we think we're in control of how much time that we have. But what James is saying here is that our time is limited. See, many of us, we make these big, boastful plans of all these things that we're going to accomplish. But what we need to realize is that life is short. We need to put our lives not in our hands, but in his hands. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. And our life does have purpose and it does have meaning. God made us for a purpose. He has a calling on our life. And if you were like, well, what is that calling? Well, ask him, talk to him about it. God, you have me in this job. I don't really want to go there Monday, but what do you have for me? God, you brought me here to Clarksville. What do you have for my life? What is the purpose? Why did you bring me here? God, you have me living in this neighborhood right now. God, what's your plan? What's your purpose? Why am I here? What would you have for me? God, I'm about to go on this vacation. I can't wait to get away. But God, where do you want me to go? God, what would you have me learn on that vacation? Invite him into the decisions that you're making in your life. In fact, I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He says, since life is so brief, we cannot afford to merely spend our lives, and we certainly do not want to waste our lives. We must invest our lives in those things that are eternal. And all the decisions that we're making, we should be asking ourselves in light of eternity. Here's the fourth one. Our enemy is a liar. I want us to specifically look at one word found in verse 15, and it's the word wills. He goes, if the Lord wills. You know, a lot of times when we hear the phrase God's will, we buy into the lie of the enemy. And here's the lie of the enemy, that God's will is going to rob you of all the joy and freedom in your life. I think a lot of us, when we hear about God's will, we think of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? We go, well, guess I got to do God's will today. Don't really want to, but I guess I've got to. It's just what I need to do. Better seek the Lord on his will today. You know, we just walk around like Eeyore, like we're depressed, like we don't really want to do it. We buy in the lie of the enemy that God's will is like eating your vegetables, That God's will is like broccoli, like it's Brussels sprouts, like it's carrots, like it's a bowl of peas. And we're like, I know it's good for me, but I don't really want to do it. And so we reluctantly go, well, I guess I'll do God's will here. And so we begrudgingly, reluctantly, bitterly are doing the will of God or want to do the will of God. 
The enemy says God's will is going to rob you. It's going to make you sad. It's going to make you sacrifice. It's going to bring you down. But the Bible says in Romans 12 too, that God's will is best. God's will will satisfy and God's will will leave you wanting nothing. Listen, God will not force his plan on you. We are not robots. We are made to have relationship with him. And as Christians, God has a plan and a purpose for your life, but he'll allow you to graciously go do your own thing. So people got to learn the hard way, right? And by doing that, you're missing out on God's glorious plan for your life. So now that we know what not to do, let's spend the rest of our time answering this question. How do I seek and submit to God's will? Because when we look at the opening part of the text, we see that James starts off by saying, well, you're not supposed to, don't go and say, well, we're going to go do this, and we're going to do this today and tomorrow, and we're going to stay a year, and we're going to do some work, and we're going to make a profit. But he now juxtapositions all of that by saying, this is how we are to respond. He says in verse 15, if the Lord wills, then we will. See, verse 15 speaks of the posture of the heart that is surrendered to God no matter what. We even see this played out in the life of Jesus. Jesus is on the eve of his crucifixion and he's praying in a garden and he prays this in Mark chapter 14. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You want to know if you're ready to submit to the will of God? Are you ready to say that phrase? in every area of your life. Not my will, but yours be done. You ready to say that in that job change that you're crying out about? Not my will, but yours be done. In that relationship, man, I want that boyfriend or that girlfriend, or I want to be married. And are you ready to say, not my will, but yours be done? In that relocation, that home that you're selling, that family decision that you're making, are you ready to say, God, not my will, but yours be done? Whatever decision it is that you are looking to make in your life, does does your heart have the posture that says, Lord, here's my cry. Here's what I want. That's what Jesus did. Lord, here's my cry. I don't really want to go to the cross. I don't really want to die, but not my will, but yours be done. Have you gotten to the place that says, God, I know my perspective is limited. I know my flesh will lie to me. I know the enemy will lie to me. I know my time is short, but not my will, but yours be done. I watch Christians all the time who think, well, this isn't a spiritual thing, so I'm not going to pray about it. You know, I got my faith over here. I got the rest of my life over here. Sure, I'll pray about spiritual things, pray about groups, pray about church, pray about the things the church is praying about. I'll pray about those things, but this is my life. This is my job. This is my career. This is my family. This is my free time. This is what I want to do. In those arenas, I make the decision. Our faith is not one that is separated out. Our faith is integrated in everything that we do. It's like this. If I were to look at my wife, Jen, and go, well, don't talk to me and don't touch me unless it's date night. Only on date night can you talk to me and can you touch me. That's weird, right? Like none of us, you wouldn't do that to your spouse. You wouldn't look at your spouse and be like, don't talk to me, don't touch me. It's not date night. But isn't that what we do to God? God, it's not Sunday. Don't talk to me. This is Monday through Saturday. This is my life. This is my time. Sunday you can. No. 
That's weird. We don't do that. Our faith is an integrated faith. And, and by the way, sometimes too, when we make decisions, we go, well, I don't feel this check, you know, because I prayed for five minutes or, you know, for, I gave God the 24 hour thing or, you know, we, we try to justify our own decisions because we think we found some things or because we're trying to spin things to work a certain way. James is telling us here, he's warning us, hey, this is dangerous. Don't live your life this way. How many of you here today, by a show of hands, believe that Jesus is Lord? You can raise your hands, right? Yeah, like Some of you aren't raising your hands because you know I'm about to set you up, right? <laughs> like, here's the thing. If you raise your hand, or even if you didn't raise your hand, here's what Lord means. It means boss. It means the one in charge. Here's what it doesn't mean. Lord and. It doesn't mean Lord and I'll pray about it. Lord and if it feels good. Lord and if I think this will make me happy. Lord and if this feels good. Lord and something doesn't go together. If we're going to know God's will, if we're ever going to experience God's best in our lives, if we're going to please him with our decision, it begins with a heart that is submitted to his will. A heart that says, God, I will die to what I want and I'll do what you want because you're Lord of everything. Are you ready to say that? God, here's my cry. Here's my request. But not my will, but yours be done. Here's what I've learned in my life. Every time I've had a lack of clarity surrounding God's will for my life, it's always an invitation for deeper intimacy with him. See, it's not up to me to just go and try to figure out God's will. It's up to me to just go and pursue him by reading his word. And not reading his word by like, okay, God, give me a word. Okay, what is this? But it's in my daily reading time with him saying, God, I'm trying to look. I I need to make a decision. I need to know what to do. It's praying to him. Again, not praying and, God, I don't feel anything in five minutes, so this must be right. But it's praying. It's seeking godly counsel. Listen, you've got a team of pastors here who would love to walk with you through any decision that you're making. We're not here just for the bad times. Like, we're here for that. We're here for the good times as well. As you're praying, as you're thinking, hey, we might know something about this. And if we don't, we can sure join in and pray and walk with you through this. But as I've read, and as I prayed, and as I sought wisdom from other people, what I found out is that God makes his will known to me. Listen, the warning we're getting here is that we're not to play God with our life. In fact, we even see this play out in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 9. The Israelites, they've conquered a lot of cities in the land of Canaan with the help of God. And news of these victories, they've started to spread. And and there's this group of people uh, called the Gibeons who, who become fearful. And so instead of engaging in battle with the Israelites, they decide to come up with this like deceptive strategy to protect their own lives. And so the Gibeonites, they disguise themselves as travelers from a far and distant land. And so they come and they approach um, Joshua and these other uh, Israelite leaders, and they're like, hey, we've heard of all the conquering that you're doing. We're hearing of all the, the slaughtering that's going on, and we're from a far and distant land. Here's our moldy bread to prove that. And here's our worn-out clothes, and here's some wineskins to prove just how far we've traveled away. And we've heard about it, and we just want to make peace. We want to sign a treaty with you. And Joshua and the leaders, they're a little, like, skeptic at first. Like, they're like, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But then they buy into the lie. They make a treaty with them, promising not to harm them. And Joshua and the leaders failed to consult God on what they should do, even though God was like, hey, guess what, guys? Don't make treaties. Don't make peace with anybody. Like, don't do this thing. Well, Joshua and the leaders do the very opposite of that. 
They don't consult God. They just go and do it. And then three days later, the Israelites discover that the Gibeonites are not from a far and distant land, but they're actually part of the people that God told them to destroy. But here's the amazing part of the story. Even though God's people are sinful, God is able to use every situation to draw people to him. See, the Gibeonites, they were trying to protect themselves. They didn't want to be killed and annihilated. They wanted to live among God's people. Even in the midst of the Israelite sin, God worked for redemption. He worked on a plan of redemption for them. And the very end of it talks about how they were able to serve God, and they were able to serve at the very end of it and be a part of that. Listen, you, you might be here today, and you might be thinking, well, I failed. I've messed up. I'm like Joshua and the leaders. Like, I didn't really, like, seek out God's wisdom. Or you might be here today living with the consequences of some of the decisions that you've made. And you're hearing the words of James today, and they are crushing you. James is a crushing book. Like, I, you know, I don't really leave here going, wow, this is so uplifting, you know? Like, it's a crushing book. But James without the cross is a crushing book. Because you got to remember what James said previously in verse 6. That God gives more grace. And it doesn't mean that we could just continue to act foolishly and go, well, God's got more grace. No, he's got grace when we make those mistakes, when we act foolishly. He'll give us more grace because of it. See, Jesus knew what he was buying when he died on the cross for your sins, and there hasn't been buyer's remorse. He knows that we stumble. He knows that we're fools. He knows that we walk around, we act like we're going to make all these plans as if we know what the future is and we don't invite him into it. He knows that our life is a mist and a vapor, but he has made a way. And the message over and over and over again from Jesus is, get up. I knew this was coming. I've got grace. Yeah, I knew you, you blew it again. My blood covered that sin. You got confused again in your pride. You made your own decisions. You acted foolishly. You, plan, you act like you know everything that's going on. But I paid for that. It's about progress, not perfection. In a very real way, Jesus saves, Jesus sustains, encourages us, and pushes us to the finish line. And all of this is good news. Now, it may not feel like good news at first. Like, wow, I failed Jesus. That's good news. No, it's good news because it gives us an opportunity to hear our arrogance and repent of that. It's good news today because we can quit being people today who walk around acting like we're know-it-alls. We really should trust the one who does know it all. And so this week, the action point for us is to repent. If you're a believer here today, is to repent. If you haven't, if you've been making decisions and you haven't been inviting the Lord into those things, repent of that today. Invite him into those plans. He's got grace in the midst of that. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, it's not that you need to go home and, okay, let me go now invite God in my plans. No, you got to invite God into your life first. Once you've invited him into your life, then he's going to reveal the plans and purpose that he has for your life. So wherever you're at today, the action point, what we need to do is we need to be people who repent and trust the God who knows it all. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.